Well, I invite you this morning to open your Bible to John 19, John 19, and let me read the text for you. Would love to finish this chapter this day as we're getting close here, but I want to look at 1931 down through 42. Let me read the text for you, John 1931. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe, for these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken." And another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in that garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Well, we close out. John chapter 19. And you remember we left off last time together in verse 30. Look there, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Luke 23 says that he bowed his head and he breathed his last. And we left there that sin was paid for, guilt forgiven, Salvation accomplished, mercy extended, Satan defeated, and the text clearly says that he died. He died, and of course, in John 20, he will rise again. But the Lord Jesus Christ died. Many live their entire life in the fear of death. In fact, some live in such fear that they would do everything in their power to deny that there's any afterlife at all. I read this week about a new phenomenon that has started appearing in our country, and it's actually spreading around the globe. It's a series of small public events that provides tea and cake. In one city, the cake is a lemon cake with a lavender buttercream frosting, and it's provided by 
this company called the Welcome Home Bakery. You say, what is this? Well, they are called Death Cafes. And there's about a thousand of them in about 30 different countries. And the concept is, is that people just need to be able to face death comfortably so that they can make the most out of their lives before they go out of existence. These death cafes globally are sponsored by an organization called Impermanence. Impermanence. It just simply means that we're not permanent, that we're not enduring, that we're transitory. Impermanence, and I'll give you what it states on their website, is a non-for-profit company undertaking innovative work around death, end of quote. It's kind of, one said, like a trip advisor for cemeteries. I mean, it is a way to cope with the fear of death and believe you're going to go out of existence and be happy. And so why not have some tea and cake and talk about non-existence? But the truth is, beloved, is that you are not impermanent. You live forever. And the truth is, is there is over 7 billion people, and you will live forever in a body that will be raised and suited for either maximum joy in heaven or for suffering in hell. You are not impermanent. You will endure, okay? You will endure. In fact, as we know it, and I say it this morning, that death is a reality. Job 18.14, far from it being wiped off out of Scripture, calls death the king of terrors. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, Paul called death an enemy that is to be feared. The writer of Hebrews 2.15 said that the fear of death is experienced by all. I mean, the truth is, the scripture out of Ecclesiastes 8.8, where it says there that no man has authority over the day of his death. You do not have authority. You do not have power over the day of your death. And frankly, for many, that's the fear. It's not just what comes after death, it's the fact that you're not in control of death. In fact, it says in Hebrews, does the writer in 9.27, that it's appointed for a man to die, what? Once, and after that comes judgment. You either are resurrected to life, or you will be frightening reality resurrected, given an eternal body for eternal punishment. But beloved, the good news today is that Jesus Christ has power over death. And he has power to raise the dead to eternal glory. The good news is that even in his death, the grave could not hold him. 
So whatever I say today out of the text, we know that Sunday's coming. Sunday here if, of course, this is Good Friday. Good Friday. He died on Good Friday. We're having a Good Friday service here on January 19th. But beloved, before we get to the resurrection in chapter 20, we have to understand his death and his burial. Remember Paul said that perishable or this perishable, 1 Corinthians 15, 53, must put on imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about this saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is in the law. But Paul said there, thanks be to God who gives us the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul stated in 2 Timothy that our Savior Jesus Christ, and then it says it this way, who abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is the gospel. He lived, he died, he was raised, and he conquered death. We're going to see that here. Now, as you glance down at the scripture, remember that the focus of our text, really from 1916 all the way down to the end of the verse in verse 42, is focused on, I would say, the fulfillment of scripture. Look at verse 24, where it says there, in verse 24, they said, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. Look down at verse 28. After this, knowing this, that all was finished, said, and then in parentheses, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. We'll come to verse 36 today, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Verse 37, and again, another scripture, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Beloved, here, our Lord has died. Now, I mentioned a week ago that there were over, I believe, 330 prophecies about the coming, the life, the death, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that were prophesied in the Old Testament that have come true in his life and will come true in his second coming. But specifically, in the Word of God, there's about 30 specific prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ by his death, written hundreds of years before, perfectly fulfilled in a 24-hour period around his crucifixion and death as well. There's many types and many analogies. Now, I mentioned last week the Apostles' Creed, and maybe Al Mohler will address some of that when he's with us on February 23rd. We have a very unique servant of the Lord to come with us. You don't want to miss that, both at 9 and at 10.30. But the Apostles' Creed, a statement from the history of our faith, said this of Christ, that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary... And we've been talking about this. 
suffered under Pontius Pilate. And then that creed says, crucified, dead, buried. Doesn't finish there, but it uses those phrases, crucified, dead, and buried. And we've been using that for an outline here. Our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified in 16 through verse 30. Today in 31 through 37, he will die or he will be seen in his physical nature, of course, not by the spirit. He will be dead in 31 through 37. And then, of course, in 38 through 42, he will be buried. And we said beyond all of that, God was sovereignly orchestrating the crucifixion, the death, and the burial of Jesus Christ to fulfill Old Testament prophecy in order to, listen, to strengthen your faith. To strengthen your faith. That's the end game here. Show you Christ. Reveal you his glory. Show you his crucifixion, his death, his burial. And then, of course, next week we'll look at the resurrection. But it's to strengthen your faith that you might believe. Now, the first section there was the crucifixion of our Lord, and that was verses 16 through 30. We saw that. I won't review that with you. He said it was finished. He bowed his head. He breathed his last and fulfilled a number of scriptures. That was part one and two. Let's pick up the text today is the death of our Lord, the death of of our Lord. Zero in with me and let's look at that together in verse 31 and 32. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross over the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. And so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. Here is the death of our Lord. Now, the death of our Lord is going to fulfill two specific Old Testament prophecies that we'll highlight. Here, the first prophecy in the death of our Lord is that the soldiers did not break his legs. In fact, look at verse 33. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, the Bible tells us there in 31, it is the day of preparation. It is Good Friday. He was on the cross at 9. He breathed his last at 3 p.m. Here it is, Passover week. It is the day of preparation. They will celebrate the Passover that night at 6 p.m. That would bring Passover day at 6 p.m. And on that special day that would come at 6 p.m., it says here that they come to Pilate and ask him. And when we use that phrase in John, they, it's talking about the Jewish leadership. They didn't want to, in verse 31, defile the Sabbath day by leaving Jesus or the other two criminals and their body on the cross. You say, well, what's going on here, Pastor? Well, you, you understand six hours was very brief for our Lord to be crucified and died. 
Roman history would tell us that some of these criminals would last for absolute days on the cross. Days. They would leave him there. And I mentioned that sometimes they would be picked and gawked at. They would be picked at by the people, if you will, but also by the vultures who would come. And in some cases, I'm sure Roman, the Romans wanted this, they would pick them while they were alive. Dogs would come in the middle of the night and, cry, and seek to, to bite them and take flesh. It was brutal. But this is a different day. This is a Sabbath day. And so the bodies should not remain on the cross. You say, well, why would they not remain on the cross? Well, there's a statement in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 21, and I think it will come up here. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile the land, your land, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. There's the text. And I would just ask you, beloved, can you believe the hypocrisy of such an act? They asked Pilate to break the legs of the Lord Jesus Christ because they want to obey this scripture, all the while they murder the one who wrote the scripture and fulfilled the scripture in perfect obedience. Something is insanely hypocritical with that, where you desire to keep the law and yet have no problem murdering, as we've seen, an innocent man. And so the Jewish leaders are in a hurry to get Jesus off the cross, to get the men off the cross. But I also want to tell you, so is God. God said that he would be in the grave, how long? Three days. Friday, part of Friday. Saturday and Sunday. So they desire to speed up his death, to get him and the others down from the cross. But beloved, as we've seen all the way through, so does God. God's orchestrating all of this. You say, well, how would they speed up his death, their death, and not leave them there for days? Well, you can see it there in verse 31. He asked them that their legs would be broken and that they might be taken away. What are we talking about here? Well, it's a, they used what has been called in the Latin a crucifragrium, is the way you would say it. A crucifragium. They would, you say, what's that? It's a massive mallet. And they would, frankly, swing it with two hands, like a sledgehammer. You say, what were they doing? They were breaking the legs. Specifically, medically, they were breaking the femurs. Literally, even in the etymology of the word, it means to shatter into 
pieces. It's interesting. You know, we're still discovering things, and I don't mean to be so frank in some ways, but they just uncovered not long ago, actually some years ago, comparatively in archaeological digs. In 1968, where a man was still encased, if you will, he was obviously in this discovery impaled on a cross, and it's fascinating that his bones are smashed at his legs. They would smash the legs. And so look at verse 32. They came, did the soldiers, their executioners, and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. You say, again, why would they do that? Because once they break the legs... um, they would cut short the criminal's ability to, to be almost yo-yo-like on the cross. In other words, as long as he had the nails in his feet, the nails in his wrist, he could pull himself up and put oxygen into his chest capacity. Once the femurs were broken, you could no longer push yourself up on the cross And you would die from asphyxiation. And so they broke the legs of the one on the right and the left. But not of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, why? Well, look at the text. Verse 33. When they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead, they did not, what? Break his legs. Now, beloved, there's a couple of things happening here is you say what? Well, at least I'd say number one, this is the testimony of the executioners. This is not just two people wielding some massive mallets. They knew he was dead. These are Roman soldiers. These are executioners. These are professionals in death when they came to the Lord Jesus Christ they did not break his legs because he is in fact dead and the scripture wants you to know that he died but it's more than just that look at the text in verse 36 for these things John said took place why that the scripture might not be fulfilled. What scripture? Not one of his bones will be broken. That's why. Not one of his bones will be broken. Beloved, let me see if I could fill this out just a little bit more for you. I think it's fascinating that in the book of Exodus, it's in Exodus 12, 46, and you remember, we're at Passover season. We're at the day of preparation for the Passover. When is Passover in this text? It's that night. They're killing thousands of lambs for what Josephus said may have been as many as three million people that would have come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. I find it interesting when the Passover was developed in Exodus 12, 46, of the meal, it says, it shall be eaten in one house You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. 
In other words, you've got to sacrifice. That sacrifice is unblemished. That sacrifice is spotless. That sacrifice is pure. And in Exodus 12, 46, you're not to break any of its bones. Certainly, John wants us to see that analogy there. In the book of Numbers, in 9, 12, they shall, speaking of the Passover, leave none of it until morning, nor... Break any of its bones for the Passover they shall keep. And as I've said, beloved, a Passover lamb here, even in this point, was to be offered without blemish and spot, a perfect lamb without a broken bone. No wonder Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it says there that Christ is our Passover. Beloved, he is the lamb of God. In fact, Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1.19, that you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or without spots. They did not break his bones, number one, to affirm his death, but number two, to fulfill the scripture. And those scriptures are true, obviously, in Exodus 12, Numbers 14. But the specific scripture fulfilled is Psalm 3420. You can read that on your own. David is seen there in Psalm 3420 as the righteous man. And it says in 3420 that he keeps all his bones and not one of them is, what? Broken. Say, why didn't they break his legs? Well, pastor, he's dead. He is dead. John wants us to understand that. He died, and I'll say something about that in a minute. But beyond that, it said, Psalm 3420 of the righteous man who was David in that picture, that the prophecy that would be, if you will, enacted through that was the Lord Jesus Christ, that he keeps all of his bones and not one of them is broken. Listen, beloved, that's probably written 800 years prior to this event. If you want just a little math, go back, I I believe I'm right, to the year 1320. It's like somebody writing that, in that sense, in 1320. David wrote it 800 years previous to this date. He keeps all of his bones and not one of them is broken. I'm sure Satan would have loved to smash his femurs. I'm sure the Jewish leader would have loved to one more time inflict pain on the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the sovereignty of God, they come to him and he is dead before his bones were broken to fulfill the scripture that you might believe on him. That's why. He did this to demonstrate the truthfulness of who he was, that you might believe on him. So there's the first fulfilled scripture in his death. The soldiers did not break his bone. But then there's a second one in the text here that the soldiers pierced his side. Look at the text with me in verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear And at once there came out, you can see it, blood and water. Now, I don't mean to get so technical with you, and I won't, believe me, okay? But there's two questions. Did it pierce his his heart, his pericardium, 
Or did it pierce his side? And there's books written on this stuff, okay? I mean, if he was pierced in the chest cavity, which is what I would think, then they pierced really at the bottom of the side. And if you do that in the condition that he was in, both of these layers, blood and water, would flow out. So, you know, which one is it? I don't know. Did they pierce his heart? And some people try to say it was his heart, it was his pericardium, and he died of a broken heart. But I think, no, he's fully in control. He's fully in control. So whether it pierced his heart with the, with the spear or it pierced his chest cavity, we do know this, that the blood and water flowed out. Now, there's a ton written on that. What is the blood and the water? The analogies and the types are tremendous. In fact, some people go back to the book of Exodus and they speak of the Passover lamb of God. The blood was shed. Other people go to the Old Testament where Jesus, or excuse me, where the miracle was produced and water came out from the rock. And they make the analogy that he is the living water that flows. But beloved, the point here Don't miss this, at least this. Medically, he is dead. Blood and water flowed from his side. It is, beloved, certainly this, a confirmation of his humanity, a confirmation of his death, a confirmation that he's human, that he has a real human body, that he died. In fact, some church fathers have said stuff like this, that the water represents baptism, that the blood represents the Lord's table, um, and a bunch of other things. No, I would think blood and water came out, proof that he was dead, a death occurred Some have said, and here's why I think this is important. Here's why I think it's included in John. Some have said that Jesus, have you heard this? I have. People have said this to me. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead because he wasn't really, what? Dead. They just thought he was dead. In fact, maybe we'll get to that in the resurrection in chapter 20, there's a view, there's a theory. Have you heard of it? It's called the swoon theory. The swoon theory is that he really didn't die on the cross. Oh man, he was beaten up, but they pulled him down from the cross and they put him into this garden tomb and the the cool air of the tomb resuscitated him. I don't think so, right? He's dead. He died for you. I think I've told you that story before when I was really with my young family. I think I've told you this. It just came to my mind. Maybe those ones that come to your mind are okay. Maybe I should pass on them though. But uh, I think we had five kids and we were all down in Chicago and we had to take a a cab from one place in Chicago to the next, probably because it was freezing. And uh, uh, so we got into this cab and I put all, I guess that would be we either had 
four kids and Patty or five kids and Patty. The twins weren't there. And I got in the front car with the man, of course, from the Middle East. And I started, started to share Christ with him. And, uh, and he told me about his faith. And I said, I thank you for sharing. I, I'm a believer. Obviously, you said many things that we would hold to. But the crucial one that we hold to is, of course, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He was the last prophet, and I was trying to share the gospel with him that he died on the cross for our sins, and he said, oh, no, Jesus didn't die. I said, oh, no, at Golgotha. That's the testimony of the Scripture. They, he said, oh, no, he didn't die. And according to the Muslim faith, to Islam, they do not believe that was the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. I said, then who was on that cross? He said an imposter was on the cross. They believe that to this day. And so I just was engaging. I'm in the, in the front seat with him. I kept changing the, the money change of the time. No, I didn't. And, uh, but I'm talking to him. But I remember after a while, 10 minutes, I kind of looked back and my five-year-old daughter, Christine, who's a missionary there, I just saw this on her face. She's just waving it off. I said, Christine, what's wrong? She said, Daddy, that was Jesus on the cross. I said, tell him that was, you know. And so she got a chance to, to share. But this is important that we establish that. The, the, the executioners, excuse the expression, Navy SEAL Team 6, those guys are professionals in that. That's what these Roman soldiers did. They knew he was dead. Then they pierced his side. Water and blood come out. He, wasn't, he didn't have to be, you know, in the coolness of the, the tomb on this. No, no, he died. There's a heresy within the history of the church. Maybe Al Mohler will talk about that. It's called docetism. And the heresy is that Jesus only seemed to take on human form. In fact, it's called docetism because it comes from dokeo, the Greek term. And dokeo just means it seems. And there is a group of heretics that Jesus only seemed to take on human form. That Jesus is not really a man and we discuss this thoroughly in my exposition that's online on the web in 1 John. Some said he's not really a man, he's a phantom. Others said falsely that he's a ghost. It was called in 1 John Gnosticism. Some people, as I mentioned, attach that to the swoon theory that he didn't die, he swooned. But that's not what the scripture says. So what does it say? Well, look down in verse 37, because we're always studying the Bible here, and I always want you to look down. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have, what? Pierced. You say, well, where is that? Well, you take your pick. Isaiah 53, 5. He was, what? Pierced. For our transgressions, 700 years before it happened, I'd have to technically check back into my history, probably before the, Perfer the Persians 
Put this into practice. The, the, the author is writing under the inspiration. They pierced my side and here pierced for our transgressions the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe Psalm 26 for sure, 22, six, excuse me, 16, they pierce my hands and what? Feet. You think he's just making this up? 800 years before, they pierced my hands and feet. And John says, the scripture was fulfilled. They did not break his bones. They pierced his side. Water and blood flowed out. He died in your place, written 800 years before. But I think primarily, and you know, we could ask John when we get to heaven, it's Zechariah 12.10 probably about 500 years before this point in history, they will look on me whom they have, do you see that there? Pierced. I don't have the time here, but in this context, it's the end of the world. God has defeated the Gentile nations who have laid siege physically to Jerusalem at the end of the world and says, I will pour out on the house of David and his inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication, and they shall look on me on whom they have pierced. This will be fulfilled prophetically. But he said it 500 years. We're not even at that point fulfilled prophecy. Be careful, young man or young woman, if you think you could run away from the truth of Scripture. You can't run from Scripture. Everything the Scripture's ever said has come true. And here in Zechariah, those are tears of repentance I believe in contrition as God rescues the nation of Israel at the end of the world. Listen, beloved, the Messiah is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the scripture says. And if that's not enough, put your eyes back in the book at verse 35. Verse 35 of John. He, now this is John the apostle. He who saw it, Saw what? Saw this, the crucifixion. And I think particularly the death, okay? You say, well, why would, what is this in 35? He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth. Here's the purpose clause. That you also may believe. I love that statement. What is this? It's the testimony of John. Are you going to tell me that he's lying? Are you going to tell me that you have something different or somebody may say this to you when you're witnessing to him? He was there. He's an eyewitness. In fact, Jesus said to the one who loved him, right? Behold your mother and behold your son. He's standing there with Mary and the women in John 19. So you say, what is verse 35? It's an oath. John is verifying the accuracy that he has died. I'm telling you the truth. I want you to believe that he is the son of God. Listen, this is not a leap in the dark. I remember when I was a teenager, I struggled. I was telling somebody that this week that I became a believer, I've told you at 14, but I struggled in my faith a little bit, 15, 16, 17. I don't know if I would say I struggled in my faith, but I, 
I was think I was just think, can I give my life to this thing? And I just kept reading the Gospels and finally, like the Lord turned the light on in the Holy Spirit. Scott, either you believe this book to be true or you're calling Jesus Christ the greatest liar that the world has ever known. Either you believe this book to be true or you're telling me, and I'm talking to myself, that all the apostolic doctrine is wrong. Either you believe this whole thing or you think all 12 of them died for the wrong reason and I couldn't get away from it and God used that to affirm my faith. And here John's telling you, I'm telling you it's true. Maybe the better question is, is who are you sharing that with? Who are you telling this? John's just giving us his, his testimony here. It's not a leap in the dark. Remember when he said this in 1 John 1? That which we have heard that which we have seen with our eyes that which we have looked upon that which we have touched with our hands the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life you're going to call him a liar i'm not you don't even have to call him a liar you can just think you're right well, I don't know, I don't know. And you're coming up with rationalizations. Maybe you need to go back and do the test that, that I did as I just kept reading the scripture. I think the Apostles' Creed is right. Crucified, dead. Thirdly, do we have time for this last one? Let me touch on it. His burial, his burial. He was placed in a grave. Now, there's much to be said here, okay? As in everything, And they go into all of Joseph of Arimathea and they go all into Nicodemus and rightfully so, but let me show you what's important. Look at verse 38, because this is the gospel, beloved. Let me just stop here for a second. Churches can talk all they want about getting the gospel out, getting out in the community. You can do that and you should do that and we're going to do that and do that, but if you don't get the message right, you don't even have the gospel that you're saying that you want to proclaim. So look what happened after these things. He's dead, he died. Verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, praise the Lord, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Okay, so Joseph of Arimathea used his position as a member of the Sanhedrin to gain access to Pilate to secure a more dignified burial for Jesus. But there's more here than just that. In Mark 15, I like this language, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And it says this, that Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. You mean he's already died? And it says there that Pilate asked the centurion. He's a professional executionist, if you will. Is that a word? An executioner? Okay. And he confirmed that he was dead. Now, don't miss me. The text isn't here about Joseph of Arimathea, but the Bible's real clear that he did took courage 
to go to Pilate. Pilate then asked the centurion, Mark 15, then they gave the permission. The issue here is to take the body away, okay? To take the body away. It's not about Joseph of Arimathea, and it's not about Nicodemus. What they did is they took the body down, and they took the body away. But I think there's something else here, don't you? You say, well, what, Scott? Well, one prophecy fulfilled. It says of Joseph of Arimathea, it says in Matthew 27, 57, there came a rich man, and not Matthew 27, 57, from Arimathea named what? Joseph. You say, well, what's significant about that? Well, John doesn't tell you, but Matthew says, there came a rich man. You say, well, what's significant about that? Look at the statement in Isaiah 53, 9, incredibly. They made his grave with the wicked and, what? With a rich man in his death. I'm telling you that the prophet, over 800 years prior, penned the word of God that the Messiah would be with a rich man in his death. And here comes Joseph of Arimathea who happened to have some influence with Pilate. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. They inquire if he's dead. The centurion says he's dead. They take him away. Prophecy fulfilled. Look there, and we'll finish here in 39. It says in Nicodemus, you remember him from John 3, who had earlier had come to Jesus by night. That's why they called him Nick at night. That's a bad joke. But um, they came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds of weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound him in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the day. 75 pounds. What's the point? He's, he, he died for you. They're, they're not wrapping a guy who was going to be re- resuscitated. They're wrapping him in 70 pie, fine, you know, five pounds of these aloes and myrrhs that they would take the linen cloth and then stick this in there. And, and they're just, they're preparing him for his death. And Nicodemus was there. And you say, what was the spices for? For fragrance. Because I think these two men love the Lord Jesus Christ. These two men, they had courage. They wanted to overcome the stench. They wanted to, frankly, stay off the stay off or starve off the decomposing flesh, but be sure of one thing. (laughs) These two wealthy men are not plotting the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's another confirmation that he's crucified, that he died, and here he is buried. Look at verse 41. Now, in the place where he was crucified, if, if the theory is right on the place of the skull where we think it is today. There was a garden. There is a garden right next to it. And in the garden, there was a new tomb. I've walked into that tomb. It's humbling, very quiet when you get to that place in which no one had been laid. Now you say, where did they get the tomb? Well, Matthew 27, 50 says that the tomb belonged to who? Joseph of Arimathea. I mean, it's amazing, all the details. So look at verse 42. It says there, so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, it says they laid Jesus there. He was buried. 
Beloved, in unmistakable, crystal clear terms, God was orchestrating the crucifixion, the death, the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to fulfill all these Old Testament prophecies for this purpose, that your faith might be strengthened. He's defeated the grave. He'll rise on the third day, praise God, in John chapter 20. We'll look at that next week. You're not impermanent. You can run from him. You can hide from him. You can have tea and cake. You can have a lavender lemon buttercream frosting and do all you want, but you will live forever. Calvin put it this way, we always ought to remember that Christ's evil executioners did nothing but what had been determined by the hand and design of God. For God did not surrender his son to the lawless passions, but determined that according to his own will and good pleasure, he should be offered as a sacrifice. And Calvin said, as we should consider on the one hand, the dreadful weight of his anger against sin, and on the other hand, Praise God, Calvin said, his infinite goodness towards us. Listen, I just want you to know, he's not a myth. He's not a kind of a, an action hero, a, a, a superhero that's generated, we all know that, in some kind of computer lab. He is not invented in the, in the mind of man. Jesus is God in the flesh and he's your only hope for life beyond this world. He did this to take away sin. You know, it could be one of the greatest tragedies of our own day and I, I don't want to say too much here. You got Marvel characters. Last time I looked, they've generated about $7 billion dollars. And we've got the Lord Jesus Christ, real, dying in your place. This is not made up stuff. This is Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, slain for you. 